When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, The thing I want to talk about uh, this week is the Battle of Tsushima in 1905 and the the repercussions, really, of this battle uh, and the argument that exists uh, amongst many uh, scholars of uh, 19th and 20th century Asia that um, it was uh, the most transformative um, military event of the 20th century, in that it ushered in um, a new Asia that really was finally um, finally born after the Second World War. And in many ways, the, the repercussions and the uh, implications of the battle are far more interesting to us as uh, historians than the uh, battle itself, though so, um, that in itself is, is worthy of exploration. So Tsushima was one of the first shots in the um, ineptly handled Russo-Japanese war. I say ineptly, ineptly on the side of uh, Russia um, and expertly uh, dispatched on, on the part of, uh, of Japan. Tsar Nicholas II had been uh, provoking gradually conflict uh, with Japan over the uh, half decade before the fighting broke out, mainly over the issue of Korea and uh, the uh, ever-increasing Russian expansion into Asia and the Pacific. One reason for this was uh, the inability of Russia in the uh, 1890s to properly uh, and confidently assert herself in the Balkans. And so um, nationalist and expansionist tensions within the Russian Empire were channeled eastwards, also in the hope that there would be uh, sufficient mineral resources that would uh, energise the Russian economy, which was slowly beginning to uh, get to grips with um, the modernity and industrialization like Western Europe. Uh, this certainly, by the 1910s, is, is really uh, quite uh, quite an important factor within Russia. It's a kind of explosive 
it has a period of explosive economic growth. Anyway, um, it's it's often said that Nicholas II provoked a war with Russia to get himself out of his domestic uh, problems. Now, if he had the guile, um, if he had the political nous to think of something so basic, uh, I I go along with that one. But I generally um, I don't I don't think it's valid. I think he uh, was reckless. I think that he stumbled into war with the Japanese. I think the Japanese gave him various outs. And he was, for the most part, an, an arrogant, uh, Eurocentric um, chauvinist. Though he himself wouldn't try not to think of himself as a, as a European. He liked to carry on this kind of masquerade fantasy of being uh, a medieval Russian boyar, uh, but spoke French and uh, was part of the kind of the Europe, grand European aristocratic uh, network. But he, he like uh, the rest of the uh, royal and aristocratic figures of Europe, um, looked upon Japan as being uh, a, a land of kind of yellow-skinned, servile, backward midgets, and uh, that in their ignorance they had no understanding of everything that had occurred since the Meiji Restoration of the 1860s. Japan's rapid um, industrialization, her uh, ability to um, take ideas and um, uh, best practices from the West, and um, the uh, improvement, the the dramatic transition from essentially a uh, semi-medieval army through to a, a modern military fighting machine. Why had Japan done this? Well, Japan had looked upon the defeat of China uh, by the British in the 1840s and 1860s. They looked at the suppression of India from 1857 onwards and thought, probably quite wisely, that Japan was next on the list, which almost undoubtedly Japan would have been um, had the, had, had the um, Meiji Restoration not dramatically uh, changed Japan's fortunes. The Japanese were at first very dubious about contacts with uh, Western nations, and other than Portugal and a couple of um, English um, legations, uh, when the uh, Americans finally arrive in Japan uh, in order to demand uh, that the uh, that Japan opens up its um, cities to American trade in much the same way that treaty ports have been established by the British in China, there is a, a period of crisis. Um, the realists and uh, pragmatists within the emperor's governments say, well, we have little other choice than to do this whereas Japanese nationalists and traditionalists and romantics um, are uh, chiefly resistant to this and terrified that Japanese culture, which has been hermetically sealed away from the rest of the world for the best part of a thousand years, is going to be uh, polluted by um, this uh, foreign barbarism. Uh, Japan is eventually uh, one to the side of uh, Western and European modernization, and the results show at Tsushima. 
So Japan is the country in Asia in the 19th century that bucks the trend. The rest of Asia is uh, suppressed. The French in Indochina, um, the British in uh, India, Malaya, and Singapore, um, the Dutch in the East in, in the Dutch Indies, and uh, eventually, at the end of the 19th century, the Americans in the Philippines, not to uh, mention uh, the, the wars waged by Britain uh, against China. And of course, there's also Britain's uh, occupation. If you go all the way uh, as west as you can, you, Britain's uh, occupation of Egypt. And the semi-colonial, um, uh, the semi-colonial suppression of Persia in the interests of um, Western tobacco industries particularly. So in May 1905, the Russian fleet that had sailed from Europe um, under appalling conditions for the sailors um, that had come close to mutiny on the way um, was met in the Tsushima Strait close to Japan um, by um, the fleet of Admiral Togo Hicharo, Hicharo. Um, and was uh, sunk within a couple of hours. Um, it was described by the Kaiser of Germany as the most important naval battle since Trafalgar, and President Theodore Roosevelt said that it was the greatest phenomenon the world had ever seen. Why did he say such a thing, such a seemingly outlandish comment? Well, because it was the first time that Asians within the uh, within seemingly within world history, had won a decisive victory over Europeans. One would probably have to go back to classical history to find uh, an example. Um, the, um, the battle um, was uh, a, a, the end point to um, Russia's war with Japan. Uh, it decisively decided it. And it was really the the only shooting that Russia had ma- been able to manage uh, in that war uh, up until that point. Um, and the it was a signal to the world that Japan had left isolation, that had, had emerged from its kind of self-imposed silence since the Middle Ages, um, and had destroyed a European power. Um, and the uh, modern technology like telegraph and um, the uh, the modern media that had connected up the world in the 19th century meant that it was not simply Europeans that got to know about this, but it was the colonial subjects of Europeans across Asia who were energised by this. And the... Um, loss of the Tsar's fleet at Tsushima was not just an issue for the Tsar, but an issue for every European power who were um, delighted, uh, whose subjected peoples in uh, Asian colonies were delighted and excited by the idea that Europeans could be taught a salutary lesson by seemingly inferior Asian peoples. Now there is a full account of this in the very, very brilliant book From the Ruins of Empire by Pankaj Mishra. Uh, And he writes that uh, in Calcutta, um, Lord Curzon, the viceroy, said that he feared 
that the reverberations of that victory have gone like a thunderclap through the whispering galleries of the East. What a marvellous, fascinating uh, way of putting it, that um, the, uh, the con- conspiratorial types um, from Suez to China um, and revolutionaries, troublemakers and that kind of thing um, had taken on board this l- defeat by Russia as almost an omen, as a sign of Western decline. Obviously, in uh, the eyes of many uh, Asian revolutionaries, Japan had managed a feat that if emulated, if um, repeated by India, by China, by Malaya or other places, then it would overthrow the domination by Europeans. The question was how to emulate this, how to repeat it, and in some parts of, of uh, India or Persia or Malaya even, Islam was, um, for many nationalists, the, the galvanizing driving force that would uh, unify nations and create a, um, a response to uh, Western imperialism. Um, Others had uh, more secular nationalist uh, interpretations or more secular nationalist visions of how to create um, a, a independence or how to overthrow colonialism. Gandhi, um, who at this point was a fairly obscure lawyer in uh, South Africa, said that so far and wide have the roots of Japanese victory spread that we cannot now visualise all the fruit it will put forth. It was one of these uh, epoch-making moments, the likes of which, I don't know, perhaps we're living through at the moment, um, that um, it was far too early to say, even weeks or months after the battle, how much influence it would have or how far it would change the world. The only thing that most people could agree on was it would um, change the world at a, a staggering pace uh, and that its implications would be vast. Japan was the role model. For- this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For modernizers across Asia, um, the uh, peoples who felt that their governments, um, places such as the Ottoman Empire or China, had been subjugated by you know, in their view, far weaker and less significant European powers like Britain and France, purely because the British and French had figured out um, the uh, the process of modernisation. They had had industrial revolutions. They had developed bureaucratic, centralised states that um, used free enterprise, trade and commerce, backed up by military force, and had colonised and used the benefits of their colonies, the economic and material benefits of their colonies, to power their own economies. Um, these were the ideas that seemed to have won out historically by the 19th century. So figures such as Mustafa Kemal, later Kemal Ataturk, um, and Jawaharlal Nehru looked at um, the examples that Europe had shown and instead of finding solutions in either Islam or Hinduism, um, they looked to instead to Japan. They said Japan is the pinnacle of Asian modernity and that is what we must be. Turkey, uh, the Ottoman Empire, mustn't be a, a backward uh, Islamic empire uh, built on uh, an absolutist monarchy instead uh, if the empire is to continue it must be um, modern and perhaps even um, a federation uh, in some way Um, obviously the uh, Turkey that emerges by the 1920s is a modern nationalist secular state Uh, Nehru um, says that um, the uh, Indian freedom and Asiatic freedom uh, from the thraldom of Europe must emerge. And the both the Japanese and uh, Indian nationalists in the first half of the 20th century saw their own national development and their own national independence or national autonomy as being uh, one and the same with uh, Asian autonomy, that um, both that either India or Japan might lead the way. They might be the trailblazer for um, you know, more junior partners, places um, such as Indochina or Malaya, um, to follow. Um, and the, in the eyes of um, Nehru, a kind of modernization um, would, be, um, uh, would be the way to achieve this. Uh, Nehru himself by the time uh, of Indian independence in 1947, is looking far more to the Soviet experience. Not that he himself wanted to see a Soviet-style revolution or Stalinism in India, 
but believed that central planning, uh, five-year uh, plans for industrialization, and that kind of thing would be the way in which a social democracy could be built in India. Both Nehru and Sun Yat-sen, the uh, Chinese nationalist, were both in Great Britain when they, they heard the news. Uh, Nehru um, was a Harrovian, he was a student, a pupil at Harrow School, and um, Sun Yat-sen was a, a Chinese emigre in London at the time. And he um, was actually cheered by Arab uh, workers and the sewers who assumed he was Japanese. Now that's a telling detail. Here we are, um, poor, perhaps not even particularly literate uh, Arab port workers on the Suez Canal, seeing Western ships sail past them day after day, really carrying the wealth of Asia to Europe. And... As far as many Europeans were concerned, Suez was the the gateway to Asia. Um, These are the Arab workers that themselves cheer on the Japanese, quite what um, Egyptian Arabs might have in common uh, with the uh, Japanese um, is is probably, probably not a great deal. But they themselves, at the time, were gripped temporarily by this huge span of pan-Asian nationalism or pan-Asian solidarity. Uh, And this gives you an indication of the impact that European colonialisation had had on Asia in the 19th century and the degree to which it was resented. And um, that also gives you an indication of the the prospects for um, European colonisation in the 20th century. Now, that's not to suggest that there was something inevitable about the decline of European empires. Obviously, you need two world wars and a a global economic depression, the rise of superpowers and that kind of thing to complete the picture. But it does suggest that that empires are quite fragile and that fragility comes in large part from those that they govern. The newspapers of the Middle East, of India, of Southeast Asia, are full of um, stories about what this implies. There are, as with all these things, moments of lurid and excitable uh, reportage of um, a belief that this might spell the end for European colonisation. Um, the uh, William Du Bois uh, the um, uh, one of the founders of the NAACP in America said that this was a kind of a, a moment of a worldwide eruption of coloured pride. Uh, and again, there, this throws up some interesting questions. What is it that a um, civil rights leader in America at a time or where the um, after effects of slavery really still haven't left the country, um, where um, despite um, the rights of black Americans to vote, uh, there is it's still, um, it's still possible to be murdered in the Deep South if, if you do. What is it that Du Bois sees in the sinking of Russia's fleet in uh, of the coast of Japan that has a relevance and a resonance with the plight of black Americans in the deep south. And the uh, and obviously the answer is he sees something there. He sees some kind of solidarity 
between the Japanese and black Americans or Asians in general. And we, we probably, in the 21st century, it would be far hard for us to make that connection. But he clearly does. And it also gives an indication as to um, the popular perceptions of colonial exploitation of Asian people. And obviously this and the realities therein as well. And it also shows us how um, tuned into um, questions of empire um, black Americans uh, were, and particularly European empire, black Americans in America were. And if you fast forward through to um, the, the 1950s, there's an immense interest by uh, black Americans in the decline of um, the British Empire in, and the French Empire in Africa. They see, they see all sorts of synergies and connections and uh, the advance of civil rights in America is a simultaneous process. Well, Pankaj Mishra has the answer. Um, he, he, he says that, you know, the Arab, Turkish, Persian, Vietnamese and Indonesian and Chinese uh, nationalists who had this um, range of backgrounds, range of experiences divided by language and geography, what do they have in common? The experience of subjugation and the um, uh, and, and subjugation really by a continent that Asia had for far, far longer viewed as being an upstart and an irrelevance. And um, that the lesson taught by Japan's victory was clear, that the white conquerors of the world were no longer invincible. And any empire that is now no longer invincible has a sell-by date. Gandhi um, in South Africa wrote that when everyone in Japan, rich or poor, came to believe in self-respect, the country became free. She could give Russia a slap in the face. In the same way, we must too need to feel the spirit of self-respect. Um, and the example to countless other nationalists um, was that, the, that, that what Japan had done was something that not simply Japan's government or her navy or her industrialists had done, but it was something that had happened within Japanese people themselves. Whether this is the case is perhaps questionable, but the, certainly the perception to many nationalists was that some kind of consciousness had shifted um, throughout the uh, amongst the Japanese people. Now, it certainly had, after the victory, um, Japan's victory over Russia and her sense of invincibility, um, would have obviously interesting implications for the future. But um, whether Japan had really gone and undergone this existential uh, cultural shift um, is, is uh, unclear. Um, what is clear is that uh, others assume, assuming this uh, saw that uh, national revolutions, the uh, overthrowing of colonialism, or in Japan's case, the threat of potential colonisation, um, meant that some kind of rejuvenation of the people and perhaps a rediscovery of um, the past, of culture, of meaning prior to colonisation needed to be sought. It's these sorts of ideas in Europe after the First World War that actually manifest themselves most key, most chiefly in fascism, 
Um, uh, whereas in Asia, they uh, become parts of secular and religious national liberation movements. The first wave of change in Asia um, happens as a result of the uh, the uh, belief that Japan's written constitution was the device that secured Japan her victory. Russia has a revolution fairly shortly after the defeat at Tsushima or the unrest that Russia is experiencing morph into a, a full-blown uh, revolution after Tsushima um, and by October 1905 the Tsar has been forced to sign the uh, October Manifesto, a constitution of sorts however short-lived. And by 1911 China has overthrown the Qing dynasty and created uh, some kind of constitutional uh, society, constitutional uh, society, even though it will be wracked with civil war until uh, the, the, the mid-1930s. Uh, similarly, a similar process has happened in the uh, Ottoman Empire. Um, and the, uh, so the, the first wave of, um, of, um, of uh, nationalist development in order to uh, either safeguard uh, nations and empires from uh, European predation or to remove Europeans is uh, the attempt to develop modern constitutional governments, be they democratic or autocratic. And I'm going to finish there. Um, I hope you found enjoyed that and found that interesting. Uh, From the Ruins of Empire is a book well worth reading. It's a, a fascinating, fascinating read. And um, I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. All the best and bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.